Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at the big, complicated world of food and agriculture. I'm Erwin Lee, your podcast host. Today's episode features China's food system. China feeds 20% of the global population on only 7% of the world's farmlands. Yet between historic urban migrations and industrial pollution of soil, rural areas are increasingly challenged in their ability to produce enough food. Chinese consumption is also changing. In 1975, China consumed 7 million tons of meat, but by 2016, it was 75 million tons. That's more than a tenfold increase. The central government has responded by intensifying agricultural operations, importing 70% of the world's soybeans, and acquiring agricultural-based assets abroad. How is a country that large supposed to sustainably feed itself, let alone at all? Joining us on this episode to chat about these challenges is Wen Qingzhou, associate at environmental think tank Brighter Green, where she works on research and systems change. In the summer of 2014, Wen Qing toured multiple cities in China to share Brighter Green's documentary film, What's for Dinner?, with Chinese and international audiences. Since then, she's helped Brighter Green expand its work in China, which has recently evolved into the Good Food Fund, a China-based organization dedicated to food-related education and empowerment. Our podcast this week is also collaborative. Kate Logan of Environment China is our co-host. Environment China is a podcast from the Beijing Energy Network that highlights innovative solutions coming forward to address China's unique environmental challenges. Kate gives us an insight rooted in experiences on the ground. So take a listen. Finding an entry point to talking about China's food system can be difficult. So I thought we'd try to start with something tangible and personal. Wenqing, how did you become interested in changing China's food system? Um, I think my interest for the food system uh, uh, started when I first saw What's for Dinner, the documentary, when I was studying uh, in New York City. Uh, so that was the first time I was exposed to this um, problem that nobody has, uh, in my personal experience, nobody has been talking about at all, which is the production and consumption of meat in China. So uh, after I saw the documentary and I um, got to know um, the producer of that documentary, which is Brother Green and the um uh, founder Mia McDonald, and uh, as I learned more about the um, the issue uh, and different impacts uh, that the meat in- industry is having, both inside China and uh, in other uh, parts of the world, then I really couldn't stop but wanting to communicate this with more people and to raise awareness and um, in- encourage people to act. Um, in whatever way they can to help make it better. Now, was it at that time that you made certain changes in your own diet, or were you already eating a certain way? Oh, um, I became vegan three years um, before that, um, although I couldn't really remember how I became vegan. Um, but um, at that time, I was certainly not aware of a lot of the um, problems in the system. Um, so after I learned more about the meat industry, and especially after I started uh, working on a small, sustainable uh, organic farm, then I found myself in a position to better communicate <laughs> this issue with my friends and family and um, any people who are ready to talk about it. You mentioned 
that you had watched What's for Dinner, and then you became an important part of spreading the message of the film in China. Can you tell us more about the reception that audiences had to the film and whether they were then beginning to change the way that they eat or thought about food? Of course. So in 2014, um, I helped organize this screening tour of What's for Dinner in China. Um, and at that time, a lot of the partners uh, who were hosting the event were uh, vegetarian restaurants or um, organizations that are already pretty well-versed in this concept. So at that time, uh, the audience was very receptive of this um, message, and a lot of them, um, after the screening, um, said that they had been wanting to talk about this for a long time, and this is a good um, opportunity for them to start having this conversation among themselves and also to the general public. And I think that's a good segue into looking at the bigger picture. I know a lot of our listeners are probably based outside of China. Um, so just in general, what makes a Chinese diet different from most Western diets? And also, how have Chinese diets been changing in recent years? And how does that fit with the, the role of the documentary? Traditionally, the Chinese diet has been heavily grain-based. Um, so in the southern part of China, that is rice. And in northern part of China, the staple food will be wheat. And we also have a huge variety of different grains like millet and oats. So traditionally, the Chinese diet um, is grain-based and with a large variety um, of vegetables and just a small amount of meat and usually used as condiments in their food. Um, so that's a, a huge contrast to what we're seeing here in the United States, where um, a big piece of meat can be at the center of the plate, uh, which has never been the case um, in Chinese uh, way of eating. After the um, 1970s into the 1980s, uh, when the country was opening up to its market to more uh, industrial equipment and input for industrialized uh, agriculture, including animal agriculture, that has allowed the um, cost of meat to really uh, drop and to have meat be more accessible to everyday people. And that's how the consumption of meat really started to grow. And that coupled with the fast food culture that entered China at around the same period of time. Um, so we're seeing the Chinese people are consuming um, a lot more meat these days uh, compared to what um, they were eating like three decades ago. And so what's the plot of what's for dinner? What's the 10-second synopsis? It's capturing the... Um, impact of this new fast food culture in um, in China on how the younger generation are eating, are used to eat, and um, the uh, impact of the more intensive uh, industrial animal agriculture um, on the environment and on people's health. It also had voices from smaller producers, like how their businesses are squeezed by larger corporations, um, uh, as well as voices from animal rights groups. So you've just spoken a bit about the domestic effects of industrialized animal agriculture in China, from soil degradation to water pollution to people's health. 
I'm wondering now, after reading your paper, The Triangle at Brighter Green, what the global significance of China's industrial food system is. Um, what implications are there for someone like me, who's living now in the United States? And maybe you could start just by outlining what the triangle is for some of our listeners. Right. Um, so in the paper, the triangle, uh, we looked at the uh, dynamics of the uh, meat and feed industry, um, and from the uh, to look at the three biggest players in that um, system, which is the United States, China, and Brazil. Um, so we were looking at how um, the industrial uh, production system and the consumption pattern uh, spread from like the U.S. to countries like China and Brazil and how that allowed the consumption level to grow um, and the impact, uh, just to respond to Urban's question, how, how that had an influence on exporting countries of the feed material that was required to produce that amount of meat in China. So what we're seeing is that the growing demand really translated into um, a high pressure um, to expand agriculture into places uh, where land is cheap and where um, the regulations, local regulations is allowing a large piece of land to be taken and converted into um, fields to produce feed, um, which is happening uh, in South America, um, especially into the fragile ecosystems like the Amazon rainforests. So the uh, impact is definitely not restrained to just one country. I'm curious, too, because you mentioned that What's for Dinner had a personal impact on you. When you watched the film, what was most surprising about it as it fits into this larger context that you just mentioned? I think the uh, the thing that really surprised me was how dependent China uh, has become on um, imported feed to be able to grow that many animals because that information has never entered my head before. And I thought that was really important in terms of um, the food security um, of the country and as well as the impact on local, uh, on domestic farmers uh, who are producing the food at a higher cost and can't compete with these uh, cheap imported uh, feedstuff. Yeah, so that was really um, what struck me and um, drove me to act. Now that we've begun to explore what some of these food systems problems are, I wanted to transition to maybe more of an optimistic note. Can you tell us about some of the solutions that you've been thinking about, learning about, researching, and pursuing while working for Brighter Green and the Good Food Fund in China? Uh, we have experimented with uh, several different ways to communicate this problem with China. I think um, to start, um, it's really important to um, encourage people to start thinking about this problem at a system level. Um, to uh, consider the impact of their food uh, and where where the food is coming from, how that is produced, who produced this food, the environmental, social, and health impacts of producing and consuming those food. That is the really the most important thing that we that we found that we can um, help to make the change happen. 
And now you and Erwin first met at a food conference in Chengdu, is that right? Yes. So what was that conference about? Uh, that conference is called the Good Food Hero Summit, uh, which is a uh, now an annual event that we organize um, at Brother Green in, in collaboration with the Good Food Fund in China. Um, so at that event, we uh, invite food activists from uh, different parts of China to come together and exchange ideas um, about what they're doing and what they want to do to make changes happen in the food system. And we invite speakers and practitioners and experts from uh, both within China and um, abroad to uh, introduce their experience and to give feedback to these many times young uh, food activists um, on their thoughts and projects to help them uh, really realize what they want, what they have in their head. And Erwin, how did you end up at that conference? Yeah, I was invited there on behalf of Brighter Green and the Good Food Fund. And so I remember when we were there, the theme of the conference was menus for the future. And one of the major ideas that seemed to gain traction among many members of the conference was the idea of a plant-forward diet and how that might change the way that people ate, not just in China, but around the world, and how the consequences of those changes in diet might lead to more sustainable outcomes across various areas. So Wenqing, I was wondering if you could talk to us more about what a plant-forward diet is and why you think it's beginning to gain popularity as an idea in China. So uh, plant-forward um, can be understood as like the plant-based more heavily, um, focusing on uh, uh, produce and uh, fresh vegetables and fruits and grains and legumes uh, instead of focusing on uh, meat in your diet. So uh, that can encourage people to reduce the environmental footprints of their um, everyday meal. A plant-forward diet has also been connected to uh, better health outcomes um, and helping people to um, avoid certain um, chronic diseases um, and to reduce the uh, suffering of animals as well. So for many different reasons, that is attracting uh, a diverse audience and people who are willing to try out um, these changes in their diet. I'm also curious. I lived in China for a number of years, and while I was there, I was mostly vegetarian. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how you think a plant-forward diet fits into Chinese diets from a cultural perspective. What sort of perceptions do people have about plant-forward diets in terms of traditional Chinese dishes? Yeah, so a traditional Chinese diet is largely plant-forward. So when we talk about plant-forward, for many Chinese, they might think it's actually plant-backward <laughs> because it's like returning to what they used to have all the time. Um, and, but the, uh, now as we talk about plant-forward, it doesn't necessarily mean they need to go back to eat what they grew up eating all the time, if they, especially if they didn't enjoy the food at that time. But we want to explore um, like new ways to uh, cook food um, and to enjoy food, the plant-based food, um, so they can find 
uh, this new diet more uh, enjoyable and uh, attractive to them. So it can be a um, interesting combination of traditional um, cuisine uh, plus a new uh, tweak <laughs> and uh, also adding the sustainability in, um, element to it. And you've also mentioned before that a number of Buddhist restaurants in China are traditionally vegetarian. I'm curious if there are any challenges in sort of changing the perception from vegetarianism as something related specifically to Buddhism as something that's broader and more accessible. Yes. So we're seeing a growing number of new uh, vegetarian restaurants uh, in China, and a lot of them are um, really trying hard to avoid being perceived as a, as has any um, religious um, connection. So um, it is a challenge that when you t uh, talk about vegetarianism to a Chinese person, um, they will think that you're probably religious or you're probably a Buddhist. Um, but these days, as people are exposed to so much information uh, that connects um, meat consumption with the environment and with their health, um, I think this perception is um, changing rapidly. So they can look at this meat consumption problem from different angles, especially the younger generations. When we start talking about a plant-forward diet and what it might look like in China, so far we've talked about how urban millennials in China might conceive of it in a trendy or cooler way, separating from previous affiliations of vegetarian cuisine and Buddhism. I'm wondering about this idea of choice. Chinese consumers, for the most part these days, are eating more meat because they can afford to do so. That means that this is something they might feel encouraged by or empowered by. So what difficulties might pushing a plant-forward diet in China look like? Um, so there are several obstacles of um, uh, promoting this plant-forward uh, concept in China, uh, but it really depends on how you communicate this concept. Um, if you avoid talking about um, how you should reduce your consumption, but instead talking about how this plant-forward diet can be good for your health, can be good for the environment, can help the social um, uh, development and um, help reduce animal suffering, then that uh, idea can be better received by the public. I don't see um, a economic um, obstacle there because it's actually not more expensive to eat a uh, plant-forward diet in China because fresh um, and high-quality produce is very easily is is really easy to find, and um, the real challenge might be to find um, like really organic and ecologically produced um, fruits and vegetables, and that would take much more effort. Absolutely. I mean, the reason why I ask that question is at least in the U.S. When we talk about access to healthy local produce at farmer's markets, for example, that often means that consumers have to pay higher prices, prices that some people, unfortunately, might not be able to afford. 
And so is there anything that the U.S. can then learn from China in terms of making healthy local produce more accessible, more affordable, since you're making this point of it not being as much of an issue in China? If we're just talking about fresh local produce, then uh, it's not that much of a problem in China. But the thing is how to find produce that um, when they grow it didn't use any pesticides or fer- uh, synthetic fertilizers. And they're produced on a biodiverse farm. So in that sense, uh, what we're seeing that's happening in China is a growing number of organizations who are organizing the, these farmers and help them market their produce directly to the uh, consumers in the city. Um, so I think the social capital uh, perspective is something that we are we see that that is um, developing really fast in China and potentially can. Um, have more exchange on that with the United States. And I guess that being said, we're also, you know, this idea that we're not just what we eat. There's more that we can be doing. So what other calls to action can you offer folks that are hoping to improve China's food system? I would encourage um, people to find, to try out different ways to encourage people to uh, think more about their food, to try to find out where their food come from, and to educate themselves about food. I, I, I know this can be a huge challenge because um, usually people want to be told like what the, uh, what the correct answer is and what should I choose and what should I not choose instead of having to find out themselves what they really agree with and how they can get that. Um, but I think that is a challenge that we have to face and we have to um, tackle. I would really love to see more uh, action on that front in terms of food education, um, not just to kids, but to young um, students and decision makers in, in the household on the food. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's a good point. I know on Environment China, we talked to Peggy Leo earlier, who has a program called Food Heroes that's focusing specifically on youth education, but making sure that we reach out to all of the audiences, especially the decision makers, is something that's probably going to be really important moving forward. The last question that we do want to end on is a riff off of what Environment China likes to ask its guests at the conclusion of each podcast. Who is an environmental hero of yours now that we're talking about actions that people can take and issues of education and spreading awareness? I would say at this point, my uh, environment hero will be um, the founder of Health Culture Revival in China. Uh, It's a small um, nonprofit organization uh, based in Chongqing, and the founder's name is Zhu Yi. What's really inspiring... um, to me, is how she could uh, really walk the talk to make a uh, small-scale, diverse, and ecological farm happen and to really focus on directly connecting um, the producer with consumers and um, to facilitate communication between the two groups and to just show everybody that this lifestyle is viable. Uh, it can feed the population, and 
it can help both the farmers, the peasant farmers, and the consumers、um, a better life. I, I really wish to see more organizations like that in China, and more people who can really be serious about what they're talking about and to、uh, take action and make real changes happen. You've been listening to Chewing the Fat, a podcast from the Yale Sustainable Food Program. To learn more about Brighter Green's work, visit brightergreen.org and goodfoodchina.net for the Good Food Fund. Also, be sure to check out Kate's podcast, Environment China, on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by myself, Ashia Jani, Josh Kimmelman, and Thomas Hagen, with support from Kate Logan and Environment China. Mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Louis De Felice. Program support by Jacqueline Mano, Jeremy Oldfield, and Mark Bomford. If anything said today gave you something to chew on, leave us a comment or email us at sustainablefood@yale.edu. We're always excited to connect with our audience near and far. For now, wishing you goodbye and good eats.